friend. How are you today? I hope you're doing well. I don't know where you are or when you are, but I do know this. It's time for some jazz. To start things off today, we'll play a classic from the late, great Dizzy Gillespie. Recorded originally in 1945. But before we get into it, take a moment to remind you that this is Songs and Stories, Supplemental Jazz Edition, Part 57, the ongoing series where we explore jazz. And this is going to be an all-bebop show. So, kick it off with Mr. Dizzy Gillespie, the Dizzy Gillespie Quintet. This is Salt Peanuts. We'll 
Oh yeah, Dizzy gonna do you good. I did bump the microphone and I apologize. After all, I'm only human and I do make a lot of mistakes. But that's okay. Remember, that's why they put erasers on pencils. To fix the mistakes that we make in our lives. But enough about me. Let's talk about Dizzy. So that particular composition you just heard, Salt Peanuts, it was a recording from 1945. Now, there's rumors about who actually wrote the composition, or composed the composition, or composed the song. It's been credited to Dizzy Gillespie with the collaboration of uh, drummer Kenny Clark, but it's also been cited as uh, written by Charlie Parker, the Birdman. Now, we, we don't really truly know exactly who wrote it. We do know this, though. It is a contrafact of I Got Rhythm. Now, you may say, Paul, what's a contrafact? I had to look it up myself. So let me read to you exactly what it is so it makes sense, because I don't expect everyone to know what a contrafact is. I just learned about it myself. So a contrafact is, effectively, a musical work based on a prior work. The term comes from classical music and has only, since the 1940s, been applied to jazz, where it's still not really a standard. In classical music, uh, contrafacts have been used as early as the parody mast and in nomine in the 16th century. So, perhaps that makes sense? In, in jazz, a, a contrafact is a musical composition consisting of a new melody overlaid on a familiar harmonic structure. Contrafact can also be explained as the use of a borrowed chord progressions. So I hope that helps you understand what a contrafact is. Again, like I said, to me, it's brand new. Now, it's a contrafact of I Got Rhythm, which was originally composed by the late great genius that was George Gershwin. It was uh, originally published in 1930, and it's become a jazz standard. Its, its chord progression is known as... Uh, the rhythm changes, and it's the foundation for a lot of popular jazz tunes. Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie um, basically borrowed from it heavily. So Salt Peanuts, um, there's no real lyrics to it per se, other than you hear Dizzy rambling about Salt Peanuts, Salt Peanuts throughout the composition. There's no real lyrics to it beyond that. It's um, a brilliant piece of music with a nice little drum bit. And it was kind of unique at the time because, like I said, it was 1942 when they wrote it. And the composition I just played for you was written in 19... I recorded, I should say, in 1945. Live. Okay. I believe it was recorded at the Village Vanguard, but I'm, I'm not able to actually source the information of where it was recorded. Nevertheless, brilliant piece. Okay, now this next composition is, I guess, technically hard bop, but 
definitely has a bebop feel to it. And it's from the brilliant, absolute genius that was the late, great John Coltrane. This is from uh, the studio album recorded in a single day, September 15th, 1957, the Van Gelder Studio in Hackensack, New Jersey, produced by Alfred Lyon, the man who founded Blue Note Records. Blue Note recording 95326 from the album Blue Train, released in January of 1958. This is John Coltrane with his classic Moments Notice. Thank <laughs> you. 
gracious me, the late great John Coltrane, with his composition, Moments Notice, from the brilliant 1957 recording, Blue Train. Quite frankly, it's my favorite John Coltrane album. Now I know A Love Supreme is regarded as probably his best work, but in my mind, Blue Train, to me, to these ears, that's his penultimate album. Now, about that song, he he never re-recorded it. Uh, the jazz artists back in the 50s used to do that often. They'd put out a record, release it, play clubs around the nation, and then go back into the studio and write some more music and release another album, and then a few years later re-record a composition that they wrote in the past because they wanted to blend a new ear to it, if you will, because they've matured and their life has moved on and things have gotten different, so... Let's reinterpret my original composition because I've changed as I've grown and here's what it sounds like to me today. But he didn't do that with Moments Notice, which was different for the times. Now that being said, the song has become an absolute jazz standard. It's been recorded by a who's who of the jazz world. McCoy Tyner recorded it in 1977. Harry Connick Jr. recorded it on his album 25 in 1992, and I, I do have that uh, on CD. Dexter Gordon recorded it in 1978. George Coleman recorded it in 1979, and Fred Hirsch recorded it in 1994. And Arturo Sandoval, who is a name I'm sure you're probably familiar with, he recorded it in 1996. And Keith Jarrett... Um, in a November 1998 performance in Newark, New Jersey, recorded it but didn't release it until 2018. As I said, it's an absolute jazz standard from the monumentally brilliant recording Blue Train. Apologies, I bumped my glasses on the mic stand there. (laughs) I'm a little um, clumsy in case you hadn't noticed before. It happens. Um... I make mistakes and I leave them in because I want this to be real and authentic and true. And the only way to do that is to be who I am. So on that record, um, John Coltrane was a member of uh, the Thelonious Monk Quartet. And they had a residency at the Five Spot, which was a, um, a, a jazz club in the Bowery District of New York City. Now, it, it closed in 1967, so don't, don't go looking for it. You won't find it. But um, personnel on that record included um, uh, Miles Davis bandmates, Paul Chambers and Philly Joe Jones. Philly Joe Jones, of course, was the drummer on that uh, recording. Uh, Paul Chambers playing the bass, Kenny Drew on the piano, Curtis Fuller on the trombone, and a very young and rather novice Lee Morgan on the trumpet. Now, that record, Blue Train, the album, um, it was gold in Canada, Italy, the UK, and the United States. Now, you have to understand that gold uh, means different things to different nations, and it's based on population. And sometimes it's a little strange. I say this because Italy, which um, is a far more populous nation than Canada, 
upon the release of this record in 1958, uh, sold 25,000 copies in Italy and 50,000 in Canada, but both certified gold. Italy was easily more than double Canada's population at the time, so I don't understand their, their standards. The UK, 100,000 copies represented gold, and that's what it sold in the UK. And in the United States, gold is 500,000 and platinum is a million. So 675,000 copies of a jazz recording, trust me when I say this, those are very good numbers. Now the record, ratings amongst every critic, all music, the Encyclopedia of Popular Music, the Penguin Guide to Jazz, and the Rolling Stone Jazz Record Guide, I'll give it four out of four or five out of five stars. The one sort of standout is Tom Hull, who gave it an A minus, which, what the hell is that? Anyway, let's move along, shall we? I'm going to play a classic uh, recording. Uh, this was originally um, from the album For Musicians Only. The, the track is known as We, and in parentheses, Alan's Alley. It was recorded in 1956, October 16th, 1956, and it's been described as the real thing, no pretense. Stan Levy was the drummer on this, and uh, his son, um, Bob Levy, well, he, he goes into detail about this track, and I'll tell you all about it. After we have a listen, this is the uh, Stan Getz version with Dizzy Gillespie and Sonny Stitt, recorded on October 16th, 1956. This is We, Alan's Alley. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
that. That's a classic. Recorded October 16th, 1956. Released in 1958. Stan Getz and Dizzy Gillespie. We, Alan Zally. So as I, I started to allude to it earlier when I talked about how Bob Levy, the son of drummer Stan Levy, discussed the uh, session. And this is a direct quote, so bear with me while I read this, because I think it's important to have this as to an idea of what the background is like. So this is what Bob Levy had to say. He said, the story behind this from my dad's point of view is that everything was done in one take. No second takes, no overdubbing. Overdubbing, pardon me. <laughs> he had spent the whole day recording for TV, Mission Impossible, Mannix, etc. So he thought, a date with Stan Getz, this should be pretty laid back. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. He said, the count-offs were breathtaking, but once they got through Bebop, which was the first track on the record, everything settled down. His favorite was We, Alan's Alley. It was virtually a live, real Bebop session. Nothing worked out. Just play by the seat of your pants. Or get off the bandstand. Like it or not, that was the way it was with Bird. And those cats, the real thing, no pretense. So, give you a little bit of background into we, Alan Zally. It was co-written by Denzel Best and Dizzy Gillespie. Now, Denzel Best, um, not, not a household name by any stretch of the imagination, he was um, a drummer, and he wrote a number of tracks. Move was probably one of his most famous outside of We. We was conceived by Best, but uh, nobody really knows how it was named. Like, where, where did it come up? Why did they title it that? Nobody can really tell. But it, it had made the rounds uh, playing in clubs on 52nd Street in New York City back in the 40s. And, uh, well... It uh, was first recorded in 1946 uh, by Coleman Hawkins. He was uh, the sax player who put that together. But that recording you just heard was a rather brilliant, uh, brilliant version from 1956, October 16th of 1956, from the album Four Musicians Only, featuring Dizzy Gillespie, of course, Stan Getz, and Sonny Stitt. Uh, now... Stan Levy, of course, it was the drummer on that because, you know, he just gave you a quote from his son, so it was a quote from a quote, if you will. Brilliant recording. Brilliant piece of music. You'll have to pardon me. I kind of lost my place there for a second, and I I couldn't remember where I was going. <laughs> it happens sometimes, as one is wont to do. So, as I spoke about him earlier, um, I think it's time to play something from him. This composition is, um, well, it stands on its own. And at 12 minutes and 10 seconds, it gives you time to really get into it. This is Le Mr. Uh, Lee Morgan, the late Lee Morgan, with Midtown Blues. <laughs> Thank you. 
Oh yeah, Lee Morgan, taking us home. From the album Leeway, recorded in, uh, when was that, 1960? Uh, released in 1961, recorded April 28th, 1960, at the Vel- Van Gelder Studio in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. Of course, the, the title of the album is The Play on Words, spelt the same way, but hyphenated. Leeway, L-E-E hyphen way. Now, the word leeway... In case you weren't quite sure about it, according to Merriam-Webster's definition, leeway uh, is an allowable margin of freedom or variation. Tolerance, basically. It, it allows you movement within. Of course, Edward Lee Morgan, Lee Morgan as he was well known, gunned down by his uh, common-law wife in 1972 at the tender age of 33 in front of Slug Saloon in New York City. That record, I said, uh, Leeway, released in uh, the third week of May 1961, recorded in a single day, April 28, 1960. Now, that track, Midtown Blues, was uh, written by Jackie McLean. It was also featured on the record. Session musicians for that, Jackie McLean, alto sax, Bobby Timmons on piano, Paul Chambers on the bass, and Art Blakey on the drums. Three godfathers of jazz, if you will. The late great Lee Morgan. The the, the music is essentially hard bop with a strong dose of soul, so I'm going to give it a bit of a lean towards bebop. I know that it's not technically bebop, but it sure is awfully darn close. Now, I have discussed, discussed, well, I've told you several recordings if you've been listening to this show for some time. Now, many of the recordings that I've played to you are, are, were either recorded at the Van Gelder Studios in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, or in Hackensack, New Jersey. Now, they're different studios. Englewood Cliffs was a specifically built studio with 39-foot wood vaulted ceilings in the style of the late great architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Very much influenced by Frank Lloyd Wright. Now, the Hackensack, New Jersey Van Gelder studio was his parents' living room of their home. That's honest-to-goodness truth. When he earned enough money from the recordings he made out of that studio, he was able to build his you know, Van Gelder Studio in Englewood Cliffs. And that studio, uh, my goodness gracious, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a who's who of jazz recordings there because it was built and opened in July of 1959, which is why, of course, that record was recorded in 1960. And he had spent seven years from 52 to 59 recording in his parents' living room. <laughs> Now, that studio in the home has long since been subsumed by the Hackensack, New Jersey University Medical Center. So it's not there. Don't go looking for it. It doesn't exist anymore. But the studio in Inglewood Cliffs is still very much there. And my goodness gracious, the number of albums recorded there that were were pushing at least a thousand by now. It's still very much... Active. The last recording that I can find was in 2018, um, 
I'm sure they did stuff in 2019, but I can't give you uh, a who's who because not everything is released to the public. Nevertheless, Rudy Van Gelder, who was a unique individual, and he guarded his secrets, uh, his recording secrets, because whenever they had photographers come into the studio to, re to, to take pictures for promotional purposes or for albums or whatever the case may be, he always moved his mics out of frame so that they couldn't see how he placed his microphones for recording. Closely guarded secrets, which, I mean, now you can digitally recreate those sounds, so... Mm, but if you're a, a purist and you want to record in a studio and you're a jazz musician, that certainly is the place to be. Okay, I have one more composition for you today. And you know what? The man is so nice, I've got to play him twice. From his 1964 recording, recorded December 9th, 1964, at the Van Gelder Studio, Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. The masterpiece that is a love supreme from John Coltrane. An album described as modal, avant-garde, free, hard bop, and post-bop jazz. This is A Love Supreme, Part 3, Pursuance. Thank you. 
from his 1964 masterpiece, A Love Supreme, was John Coltrane, A Love Supreme, Part 3, Pursuance. And that was recorded in a single take on December 9th, 1964. The brilliance that was John Coltrane. Now, on that record, you also hear the likes of the brilliant penis that was McCoy Tyner. Now, McCoy passed away a little while back. I can check on that if you're interested. I was lucky enough to see Mr. McCoy Tyner play live at the Jazz Festival here in Ottawa about uh, 10 or 11 years ago. It was more than 12 years ago. I think it was 2008 when I saw him perform. He died in uh, March of uh, 2020 uh, at the age of, uh, how old was he? My goodness, 81. Still quite young because my dad is 80. Uh, we don't really know the cause of his death because uh, he had been in ill health for quite some time. So I am happy to say that I, I was lucky enough to see him before, uh, before his health took a turn for the worst. The late, great McCoy Tyner, of course, on that record was also Mr. Elvin Jones on the drums and Jimmy Garrison at the double bass. Now, Coltrane was the band leader. He did some vocal work, as you can hear in other uh, parts of that album. He chants, I love Supreme, I love Supreme, over and over again on the very first cut of the record. Uh, Acknowledgement, uh, which was the first part one, so that... The record is broken up technically into four parts. Part one, acknowledgement. Part two, resolution. Part three, pursuance. And part four, psalm. Now, the way the track ends very suddenly is because they moved right into psalm. But at 17 minutes and 53 seconds, I thought, that's a little bit long for today, and I'm already well past the one-hour mark. So, to that. I will bid you adieu, and I hope wherever you are listening to this that you're having a good day, and that the jazz that we listen to together brings you peace of mind and happiness. We are in troubled times, and I don't need to tell you that because you are well aware of it, and hopefully we'll all get through this together. Someday soon, we'll raise a glass, whether it be alcohol or tea. That's yet to be determined, and it doesn't really matter as long as we can be together again. That's really what's important now, isn't it? Until we meet again, my friends, I am with you as always, in spirit, if not in mind of body. Mind of body? Mind and body. <laughs> there I go, stumbling over my words again. It happens. Until we meet again, take care. Bye.